Well, good morning to everybody. We are in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 today. And this is the second week that we're looking at this doctrine called union with Christ, what some call the most important doctrine no one's ever heard about, as I told you last week. And so as you are getting your Bibles open, and I hope you will do that, I hope you will open them up and turn them on, have them ready to follow along. I want you to think about this question. If someone who didn't follow Christ were to ask you, what is God doing in the world? And what's God up to? What would you say? How would you answer that question? What's God's overarching purpose in the universe according to the Bible? And, you know, we, we can say a lot of things. We might say forgiveness of sins or to bring God glory. Or maybe you would say, I'm not sure because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. But what would you say? The Bible tells us this. That God's overarching purpose is creating a people for himself from all tribes and tongues and nations so he can display the supremacy of his infinite glory to the watching universe. That's what God is up to. And that actually is the Bible's foundational theme upon which all other themes in the Bible rest God's purpose in history, we see it from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's not kind of this loose connection of doctrinal truths. The Bible is telling us again and again all through its pages that God is creating a relationship of profound belonging with his people in Jesus for his glory, for our good. And this relationship of profound Belonging, personal belonging to God in Christ has been described for 2,000 years as our union with Christ. And everything else really in our faith emanates out from that center. Salvation is union with Christ. That's what God is doing in the universe. He's bringing people across millennia and continents and ethnicities all into this relationship with him in Jesus. And this is so very important for all of us to hear because many of us, and maybe this is you, see Christianity as this kind of vast collection of disconnected teachings on all these various topics. There's doctrines, you know, like election and justification and sanctification and glorification. There's forgiveness of sin. There's adoption into God's family. There's the attributes of God in the person and work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And there's the local church and there's the Ten Commandments. And then all the implications of all those things, how they work out in our lives, how we love and forgive and how we serve and how we, we, we work, how we live in our marriages and in our families and in our singleness and how we serve our communities and the poor and the marginalized, how we seek justice on and on and on. And these are all important truths. But here's the question. What connects them? What binds them all together? Is there anything that unites them together so that they are presenting one coherent, whole message? Is there anything that puts this into this category for understanding who God is and what God is up to in the universe? And the answer is yes. And the category is our union with Christ. This personal, 
and profound belonging to God in Jesus. Now, maybe you've just heard this and maybe you're thinking right now, I'm not sure I see it. Well, let me help you. Think about it like this. Election is God's gracious, sovereign choice to unite his people to him in Jesus. Justification is about God's work of creating this union in Jesus. Sanctification is about personally growing within this union in Jesus. Glorification is about the ultimate goal of this union in Jesus. Let's get to real life, you know, situations uh, where we live. Marriage. Marriage is, is created by God. We're told in the New Testament to point to the union between Jesus and his bride, the church. Spiritual disciplines like reading God's word and praying and, and, and giving and serving are, are, are means that, by which we cultivate communion within this union with Christ. And the local church, who we are, what we're doing today and every day of the week, you know, this is meant to be this living, breathing display of Jesus' bride that the world can see. And that Jesus will one day come and take home to be with him forever. Do you see maybe now, I mean, we could go on and on. And all these massive, beautiful truths, I hope you're hearing this throughout these weeks, are ultimately relational. Without grasping our union with Christ, all the relational riches God has for us, they, they kind of become untethered and they float off and, you know, they turn maybe into this kind of, disconnected constellation of doctrinal truths sort of out there. We look at one, then the other, rather than this vast panorama of connected relational truths all orbiting around our union in Christ. That's why I asked you this simple question last week, what does it mean to be a Christian? And when we think, as many of us often do, that it's only about forgiveness of sins or it's only about going to heaven instead of hell, I mean, I'm voting for that. Are you still voting for that one today? Or, or maybe when we think it's about believing the right doctrines, if that's how we think, we can unintentionally reduce Christianity to its individual parts. And, and even when, as we said last week, we, we think of it as, having a relationship with God, which is true, we're still not answering the important question, which is what kind of relationship? I mean, because we all have different kinds of different relationships with all kinds of different people, right? There's casual and deep relationships. There's functional and dysfunctional relationships. There's loving and abusive. There's shallow and there's deep and intimate. And if Christianity is about having a relationship with God, then we need to know what that relationship actually looks like, right? And the Bible says... That relationship looks like being in Christ, union with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, you'll remember if you were here last week uh, in Romans 5, 12 through 21, we saw that union with Christ means Jesus represents us and Jesus gives us this new identity. And, and today we're going to dig deeper into that because Paul's digging deeper into that in Romans 6. And we're, we're going to consider some more aspects of what that union with Christ means. And oh, by the way, um, we're going to be talking about this throughout the next few chapters here and there because it's going to keep cropping up. But today it's United with Christ part two. And Romans 6 is kind of this turning point in the book of Romans. 
In Romans 6 through 8, Paul is shifting from this focus of how we, we are made right with God, Romans 1 to 5, that's justification, to a focus on how God makes us more like Jesus, which we call sanctification. And, and that has to do with our relationship to sin. And so he's just asking a question that I think all of us are regularly asking, which is how now do we live as people who've been made right with God? And in Romans 6, Paul is showing how the power of sin has been decisively broken in the lives of God's people. And he wants us to see, it's kind of his overarching purpose here, to show how faith in Jesus, our union in Christ, transforms how we see God, how we relate to God, how we see ourselves, how we we engage in our ongoing battle with sin in our lives. This is a very, very practical section. And union with Christ is at the heart of it. See, Paul is still telling us that union with Christ gives us a totally new identity. And now he's going to tell us that new identity gives us a new and unique power to battle sin. Maybe you've wondered sometimes, have you ever thought this? Why is it that Jesus doesn't seem to make more of a difference in so many of the lives of of some people who follow him? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked why? There isn't more hope or joy or love in the lives of Jesus' people. You ever wonder why we so often have kind of this hard time, you know, actually living out what we know is true about God? And there's a lot of different ways to answer those questions. But I think Paul is telling us here that the root reason is this. Many of us are not aware of the depths of the relationship we have with God in Christ. And this is not fiction. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a a myth. This is real reality. And the question is, are we going to live into these realities? Because God has called us to live into the realities of who he says we are in Christ See, Paul is telling us that God is offering us a relationship with him in Christ that is unlike any other possible relationship. No other relationship gives more meaning, more joy, more security, more hope, more peace, more love than being united with Christ. In fact, every one of you, Every human being longs for a relationship like this because God made us for a relationship like this. By the way, this is why so many of us are so frustrated with our horizontal relationships with other people because deep down we are looking for people to give us what only God can give us. See, I want you to learn what it means to be united with Christ, because if you don't, you're going to miss out on so much of what God has for you. It's kind of like you were living on top of a gold mine that you don't know is there. Fabulous wealth be, you know, within easy reach, but you don't know about it. You don't access it. And Paul is just trying to get us to see that when we begin to live into the realities of our union with Christ, it changes everything. 
Now let's remind ourselves where we are in the flow of Paul's letter. You know, Romans 1 to 5 uh, is this powerful declaration of God's victory over sin and death through grace. And Romans 5, that chapter ends with Paul telling us God's grace is so powerful. It swallows up sin and death and guilt and shame in Jesus as this new head of this new community that we are in. We're in Christ. He's our head. And, and it's only natural kind of in light of that to ask, wait a minute, like um, if my sin is forgiven and it will always be forgiven, does it really matter how I live? That's where Paul starts in Romans 6. And the question that he's really dealing with is this one. This is kind of your first heading. He's just asking this question, well, how do we battle sin? And Paul's answer is our union in Christ. That's how he answers the question. In verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the idea here, some people were saying, it was that if God shows us grace by forgiving our sin, why not keep on sinning so God can show more grace? Like, that sounds like a win-win, right? And you know, there always have been people who have believed there's no such thing as a free lunch. And... Free grace, they think, only encourages sin. And evidently, that's what some of Paul's opponents thought. And if you're paying attention, you are aware that that's what some people today think. They reject free grace for that reason. You know, they just think if God is just going to forgive us no matter what, then what's the motive to fight against sin, to not sin? And maybe some of you have never articulated it quite like that because it sounds kind of naughty to think that, right? You don't want to go there. But if you have walked with Jesus any amount of time, this question has surely crossed your mind. I mean, if God forgives all of my sin, past, present, future, what motive do I have to walk obediently? If I can always ask in forgiveness, why can't I just sin, do whatever I want, and ask for forgiveness after? You know, what reason do I have to fight against the, the sins in my life? I mean, if I'm forgiven by grace, why bother? And this actually is an important question. And here's what, what Paul's opponents back then, here's what uh, really every other religious approach throughout all history except the gospel of grace says. They will say, or they said, the only motive that really leads to change is by making your salvation dependent on your obedience, that, that you understand that God loves you according to how good you are. And this is an attractive teaching to many people. It appeals to our pride. It gives us something to do, something we can claim is ours. But if you actually step back and think about it, it's not good news because you never know if you've been good enough. You, You never really know where you stand with God. And basically, every other religion functions just like this, except the gospel of Jesus. So how does Paul respond here? What does he say in verse two? Here's his answer, by no means. He strongly rejects any suggestion that grace encourages people to sin. And then he asks a surprising question and you need to feel its force. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And actually this question is the question 
Paul is going to be answering for the next couple of chapters. And I want you to see how he answers this question. We, we get a clue into his mind by the way he answers this question. And we see that he sees reality through this completely different lens than we normally do. So one way I can help you see this is just for you to ask yourself, if somebody asked me, does God's grace lead to sin, how would I answer that question? I mean, think about it. How would you respond? I think most Christians who've read the Bible and been taught some would would be able to say, no, of course not. It doesn't work like that. God initiates his love and he loves us by his grace. And then we just respond to his love and grace for us. And and of course, that is 100% true. That is a good answer. But I want you to notice that is not how Paul answers here. Did you notice He answers that question with another question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, Paul is getting at something else here, something deeper and more profound and more transformative. And think about it. If this was his default response to the claim that grace leads to sin, maybe it should be ours as well. Paul is saying in Christ we are in some sense dead to sin. I mean, it's right there. You can see it, right? In verse 11, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. And and it may not be immediately obvious to us what this means, but he's about to unpack it. And his point must be, if we're dead to sin, then we certainly won't continue to live in sin because dead things are dead. And if a relationship between a Christ follower and sin is described as a death, that means our relationship with sin has profoundly changed from the way it was before. And what it means is this, it means that sin has no power over us. In other words, listen, God wants you to see yourself in a whole new way because you're in Christ. He wants us to see our relationship with sin in an entirely different way, maybe than we've ever thought about. Now, I'm giving you the answer to the question before Paul does, but because I really want you to see it as we move into it. But Paul is just asking this question, well, how do we battle sin? And he's ultimately saying to us, we do it through our union with Christ. That's how we battle sin. And in this passage, he talks about that in two major ways. And the first way, and it's a real obvious thing from the text, you can write this down. He says, you battle sin like this. We live as those who have died in Christ. We live as those who have died in Christ. That's what he's saying in verses 3 to 7. So ask yourself this question. Maybe write it down so you can think about it later. Do I think of myself as dead to sin ever? Do I? I mean, is that even a category for me? Paul says that's how God sees you in Christ. Verses 3 through 5, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he, he tells us there's this picture of what's happening here. It's baptism. 
It's a symbol of our spiritual union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I think sometimes people get confused about what being dead to sin means. So let me tell you a couple of things that it doesn't. Uh, Died to sin, you know, when Paul says it doesn't mean that we no longer want to sin. And if it did, why would Paul be telling us, don't do it? Um, He's going to really get into that in verses 12 to 14, which we'll study next week. And Paul is regularly telling Christians, you, don't, you shouldn't sin, uh, don't sin. Why would he tell us that if we didn't want to sin? Second, died to sin also doesn't mean just that we no longer ought to sin. Now, we ought not to sin. Sin is inappropriate for us. That's true. But that is far less than what Paul is saying. He's not saying we ought to die. He is saying we died. Do you hear that? Died to sin third doesn't mean that sin is going away little by little. Paul's not here talking about a process. He's talking about a decisive uh, past once for all action. And we know that from the Greek tense. It's the past tense. It was called an aorist tense. And, and then fourth, died to sin doesn't mean we've renounced sin. Now, again, there is some truth here. We should renounce sin, but this probably is not what Paul is, is teaching because he, he tells us in verses three to five that our death to sin is the result of our union with Christ. You see it? He says, we've died to sin because something's been done to us, not because we've done something. So what does died to sin mean? In short, Paul is telling us from the moment we trust in Christ, we are no longer under the reign, the dominion, the power of sin. Because or before we were united to Christ, sin mastered us, sin enslaved us, sin had dominion over us. We, we didn't see our sins as sinful. And, and even if we, we did, we couldn't resist them. You remember that? Just kept doing the stuff that you kind of felt like, I don't really want to do this. Why do I keep doing this? Because you were a slave. But you're not anymore. Paul says, in Christ, there's a new power working in our lives. We can resist sin. Why? Because we have been united with Christ. Now, Paul knew that we would have a hard time, you know, kind of wrestling with this abstraction here. So he gives us this picture that we can see and we can feel. It's this picture of our union, and the picture is our baptism. Notice he assumes here Every Christian is baptized. And this is a good thing for me to remind you today, one week from our next baptism. If you profess faith in Christ and you have chosen never to be baptized, you should be baptized. It's the first step that Jesus gives his followers to obey. Paul assumes that all Christians are are baptized. And he's saying that baptism is a picture. He's saying the, the real physical, visible realities of baptism are meant to point to the real, spiritual, invisible realities of our union with Christ. Baptism is this picture of dying and being buried with Jesus as we're immersed under the water, of being raised out of the water to new life with Jesus as we're brought up out of it. Our old self died in that watery tomb 
And we have been raised to new life as a new people of God under Jesus as the head of a new humanity, Romans 5. And because we're, we're part of God's new humanity, we are called to live new lives as new people, Romans 6. And Paul is just saying, how can we not? That's what Paul's getting at here. So no, God's grace doesn't lead to sin but an entirely new relationship with God that transforms how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see sin. Just another quick aside here. This passage, I think, is another important evidence that baptism is for believers only. It's not for infants. Paul doesn't say that baptism is a promise of of potential future realities in someone's life like with infant baptism he says it is a symbol of something that's already happened present realities based on something that's taken place in the past in someone's life because of someone's current faith in Jesus that means it's for believers only and the fact that baptism says all this also underlines these profound realities it means that baptism is so important If baptism is about our union with Jesus, it's not just this kind of casual, optional, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'll get to it when I feel like it, when it's convenient for me kind of a thing. It's an enormous thing. Now, Paul, then he moves on to show specifically how our old self has died. In verses 6 and 7, He he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. And our old self means that who we were under Adam, Paul says, the first head of humanity. It's our old self with all our old sinful desires, our old self that was self-centered, that was broken, that was God ignoring, that cared more about us than anything else. Paul says we were enslaved to sin then, we were spiritually dead. And that phrase, body of sin, refers most likely to how we act out the desires of the old self in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. That's all dead. And the point here is that outside of Christ, again, we're enslaved to sin. We want to sin, but we don't want God. I mean, you know, it's kind of an interesting, another aside, people will ask a lot of times, well, do we have free will without Christ? And Uh, There are a a number of philosophical complexities around this question that we don't have time for today. But in a sense, the answer is yes. And we will always freely choose not God. We will always choose to sin and we cannot free ourselves from this master. Slaves are subject to their masters outside of Christ. We are ruled by the power of sin. We are trapped. And over the years as your pastor... I've talked to many of you, I've heard your stories of what it was like and where you were before you came to Christ. And and, and I was thinking about those stories this week. And, you know, you look back now and you remember the dark conditions even today. And of of course, you know, when you're in the darkness, you don't recognize that it's darkness. And, And this doesn't mean that back then you were, you know, even what the world calls a bad person. Many of you were what the world calls good people, generally moral, generally kind, but you look back now and you know you were spiritually deceived. And 
Some of you were even religious. You did a lot of religious stuff. And, you know, many of you did the religious thing on Sunday. And then the rest of the week, you battled and often, more often than not, gave in to pride and anger and lust. And you realize now, looking back, I couldn't stop. And I actually didn't even see a reason to stop because I thought that was just how life was. And everyone around you also thought that. Everyone around you bought into the myth we're only as good as our performance. So some of you especially became strivers and achievers trying to be good enough for something you didn't quite know what. But in all of this, many of you look back and you remember that your life was filled with shame. You didn't want other people to know the things that you had done. You didn't want other people to know the things that had been done to you. And you would say, as you look back, I was alone. I was lost. And this is the true story for everyone outside of Christ, though our story's details are are different. But then one day what happened? Somehow, somewhere, someone spoke into the spiritual darkness and you heard the gospel of Jesus that there is a God and he is preeminently good and kind and beautiful and glorious, but he's also absolutely just and holy. And somehow your eyes were open and you saw that we are all sinners who deserve God's just judgment for our sin. And yet this God in his love, He sent his son, Jesus, to live for us and die for us and be raised for us and and, and to be glorified for us in order to forgive us and bring us home to the God who made us and loves us. And the spirit at times takes words and messages like that and he puts them into the hearts of dead people and, and dead people come alive. They come alive. God takes out a stony heart and he puts in a heart of flesh. And they come alive to God. And some of you remember, you woke up one day, it was like, and you said, what have I been doing? I don't want to live in the darkness anymore. I want to live in the light. I want to know God. And so we turn from sin and we turn to Jesus by faith. And in that moment, Paul is telling us we are united with him to him. In that moment, our old self died with him on the cross, that self that was trying to live without God on its own terms, trying, as Paul says in Romans 1, to find life in created things. That old self is dead. That old self that didn't want to know God, dead. That old self-exalting, selfish soul self is dead. And Paul says here that old self was crucified with Jesus, meaning that God sees our old self, that old you. He sees it as having been crucified with Jesus so that the, the nails and the sphere and the asphyxiation that was experienced by Jesus on the cross, your old self also experienced on the cross. And what that should cause us to do is ask ourselves a question. I was dead, now I'm alive. And what relationship now can I have with dead things? You ever ask yourself that question? It's a helpful question. I mean, I'm kind of hoping you don't want to have a relationship with dead things, right? 
I mean, something is wrong if you do. That, that's Paul's point. Our old self is dead. Therefore, we cannot have a relationship with dead things. It's unnatural. It's dead. And he goes on in verse 7, for one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. And that means that by faith in Christ, we are now dead to the ruling power of sin. We have a new master. We're no longer slaves. And so we obey the spirit who gives us new power and new desires to follow and obey God. And if you're really thinking about what I'm saying, then maybe you're also asking this question. Okay, I, I see it. I think I get it, but why do I still sin? Why am I still tempted to sin? Why do I still give in to sin? Why did some of you sin on your way to church this morning? We saw when you drove onto the property, you have cameras. We knew (laughs) some of you sinners. um, Why am I still tempted to sin? Now, the Bible is also very clear that the fact of Sin's dominion being defeated doesn't mean that sin has been completely eradicated. It is still present, but it no longer rules. See, the rest of the New Testament is clear. Sin is this ongoing reality Christ followers must deal with, yet it is no longer our master anymore because our old self is dead. Now, the answer to this dilemma, this problem that we experience is that we are living in what theologians refer to as the overlap of the ages. Jesus came to bring in the kingdom of God. He came as Messiah and king to live and to die, to rise and to inaugurate his reign as the gospel is being spread to all the nations. And we now live in that time where we wait for Jesus to come back and consummate his kingdom and complete his work in the day of judgment and in the restorations of the new heavens and earth. And so the kingdom is here. It's already been inaugurated, but it's not yet been consummated. We live in the in-between. The power of sin has been defeated in our lives and it, it does not have control over us, but it's still hanging around. And it can tempt And it lies to you all the time. It can seduce and try to pull you in and promise you something, but it will only always ever tear you down. It can deceive you, but it cannot dominate you unless you let it. That's its only power. And this is so important to remember. You know, if if I or if sin can convince you that you are still under its power, then it has you exactly where it wants you. And that means the key to battling sin in our lives is to know that we are dead to that master. His whisperings no longer hold sway over our lives. We are not helpless victims. And so when you are tempted to sin, you must learn to say, I am dead. I am dead. I am dead to that way of life. My old self no longer lives. And you begin to relate to sin in a radically different way than you used to. Just like you naturally relate differently to dead things in your life than you do to living things. You don't keep dead pets around, do you? If you got a dead plant, I mean, it's dead, dead, you know, really dead. You don't keep watering it. You don't put fertilizer on it because it's dead. We don't keep dead people around. 
It's not natural, it's not healthy, and it's the same thing with our old sinful self. And see, part of the reason so many of us struggle in the Christian life is, you know, we're, we're conflicted. We're like living with the dead things and we're living with the alive things. We're halfway in, we're halfway out. We want Jesus, we don't want Jesus. And you must make a decision, live out of the reality of your union with Christ or your whole life will be only one of conflict. You only, sin only has power that you give it. See, God's grace does not lead us to sin. God's grace causes us to battle sin because we are dead in Christ. We are dead in Christ. I want you to ask yourself, how would you in your battle of sin be changed if you were living each day as though you were dead to sin? If this has not been a category in your mind, you need to bring it in to your thoughts. You need to bring it into your prayers. You need to bring it into your life. You need to be thinking about it every day because sin is around us every day, right? Paul goes on and concludes that not only has our old self died, here's the second way we battle sin that relates to union in Christ. He says we are made alive to God in Christ. We are made alive to God in Christ. And we see this um, In verses 8 through 11, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If our old selves have died, then we have confidence that we'll be raised with him, Paul says. Why is that? Well, he explains in verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In other words, if you die and you rise again and defeat death, death never can win ever again. Death gets one shot. And it had its shot with Jesus' death lost. And it is a defeated forever foe. Verses 10 and 11, it says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then verse 11 starts with this word, so. Maybe the most important so in the New Testament. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's just telling us Jesus' death and resurrection were decisive events. He died to sin once for all. He now lives once for all. And if we are in Christ, that means the same is true of us. That means that we, like Jesus, are freed from the domain of sin, freed from the power of sin, freed from the slavery of sin. We are now free in Christ because we are in Christ. This is all, again, I keep telling you, because of our union with Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. We have a new life. We're living in a, out of a new identity. We're in a new reality. That's why I talked a couple weeks ago about reality. This is all reality. If you are in any way thinking this is about somehow a mind game that you pretend, you're not getting it. This is reality. All that stuff the world tells us, not reality. Um, some of you, it's going to be a shock, but the stuff on the internet is often not true. <laughs> and the stuff on your social media is even more often not true. Right? Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> but you know what? A lot of you say amen right now, and then you're going to go live in that world as if it were real. This is real. 
This is real. This right here is real. Let me give you a picture. Maybe it'll help some of you understand it, okay? Um, This one is for the guys mostly, okay? But ladies, you can listen in. Um, It's like before we came to Christ, we were just mere mortals, but now we're superheroes, okay? You know, it's like we're Superman now. We have superpowers now. Now, I want you to kind of stay with me here on the superhero thing for a minute. I want to move to a, another category. And this, I think, will help you get this, okay? It's like when you compare Batman and Spider-Man. I, I know we got fanboys of each of these, you know. Uh, but I want you to think about these two. Batman is this rich, strong guy. And he's got many, many lots of cool gadgets, Right? Spider-Man's got some cool toys too, but his superhero-ness is more about his spider powers, right? That he got when he was bitten by that radioactive spider. And if you can hang with me on this, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but this is more what it's like to be made alive in Christ, to be united in Christ. It is not like Jesus gives us a whole lot of new gadgets because Jesus is really rich. It is more like Jesus has made us into new people because we're in him. And so we have who he is in us. Now, of course, we don't push that too far. We're still mere mortals. We are, but we are mortals in Christ. And what I'm saying to you is that remembering we're in union with Christ, made alive in Christ, reminds us that something has changed and we're no longer what we used to be. And we're going to come back to verse 11 next week again and see that this is this major transformative secret for what it means to live for God. Paul is in this verse. I told you about this a couple of months ago when we studied this passage. Paul is shifting from the indicative here in verse 11. It's the first command in the entire book up to this point. Everything before has been indicative, just describing how uh, things are. And now it's moved to imperative. It's describing what we must do. And he's going to keep doing this. So he's telling us how to live. And he's saying in light of our union with Jesus, we must see ourselves in a whole new way. He says, when you look in the mirror, you must remember that that old unbelieving sinful self is dead and gone and no longer around in its place. What you are looking at is someone who's been made alive to God. Paul is saying, so live like you're alive. Live in reality. Live in the truth, Paul says, because in Christ, that's real, that's true, and that's Paul's point. And so again, what we're talking about here, this is not some kind of Christian self-help It is not make-believe. It's not fiction. It's not pretend. This is real reality on the authority of God and his word. And our call is to live into that. And so part of what that means is this needs to become our confession. In fact, I was thinking some of us need to kind of create something that we pray that helps us to remember and to live into this. And maybe this can be a start for, for you Our confession, having been justified, declared righteous, we are united with Christ and called to live a life to God. Just put the first person personal pronouns into that. Jesus is telling us to do that. That's who we are. And Jesus also says the truth sets us free. So let's close with this. Most of us, I think, 
um, at one time or another, have wondered, are those really my parents? I don't know, maybe I was switched at birth. I mean, just imagine, and this won't be imagination for some of you, this is the way it was, but just imagine that your parents were harsh and always critical, that you were always a disappointment to them, and that was just your life. But then one day you were like up in the attic and you were sifting through some old papers and it's all dusty around you and there's this footlocker that you've managed to get open. You're looking at the papers and as you're looking at the papers, you discover that you had in fact been switched at birth. These are not your parents. They are criminals. And right here is the evidence to prove it. And you keep reading these papers and you discover that your real mom is a three-star Michelin chef. Your real dad is a Nobel Prize scientist and a professional baseball player. And you think to yourself, this explains everything. I knew I was awesome. I knew it all the time. Now, wouldn't discovering that cause you to reinterpret everything you thought you knew about your life, where you came from, your identity, your potential, your destiny? I mean, everything about your life would change, right? Your life would never be the same. But here's the thing. That's what had always been true. You just didn't know it. It was true of you before you you made the discovery. It was reality rooted in history, but your life did not change until you discovered what had always been the truth underlying your life that yet had up until that moment been hidden from your sight. Like you would come down out of that attic a totally different person, wouldn't you? And you can walk out of here today totally changed. You have a new identity and now you know it. You have new spiritual DNA and that's the Holy Spirit. And now you get to live this new reality. All it's going to take is faith. Faith in the God who loved you so much, he gave you his only son. You are united with Christ. That's it. That's it. That's what Paul is, is saying. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. That's it. I have a question. How, how do you go to lunch after this? I mean, seriously. How, how do you go to lunch after this? It, it's... It's not hyperbole to say that what I've just told you is one of the most wonderful things you will ever hear in your life. So don't just go to lunch today, okay? Don't just turn on the TV and watch whatever it is you're going to watch this afternoon. Don't just go to Costco Don't just carry on with your day like nothing is different because everything is different. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And that's good news, right, Southwinds?
good news. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and we prepare uh, to receive the Lord's Supper together, I simply want to ask you, encourage you to take and to eat and to drink, remembering, knowing I am in Christ. Father God, these these are massive truths that are so very precious. More to be desired are they than gold. Even fine gold, sweeter, Lord, than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God, what must you be like to invite us into such a relationship? How loving must you be to extend your grace to people like us, Lord? How patient must you be to bear with us? How powerful must you be to redeem a people for your glory? How merciful must you be? Lord, we, we need these truths in our lives, and so we ask that you would press them down into our hearts and our minds, press them down into our lives. God, help us to live as though our old selves are dead because they are. Help us to live as though we have been made alive to you because we have. Father, we pray all these things and all of the other requests that are even now being lifted before your throne. We pray them all in Jesus' powerful name. And all God's people said, amen.